The first programmers started out as computers. This was the name given by the Army to a group of over 80 women working at the University of Pennsylvania during World War II, calculating ballistic trajectories, complex differential equations by hand. When the Army agreed to fund an experimental project, the first all-electronic digital computer, six computers, were selected in 1945 to be its first programmers. They were Kathleen McNulty Mockley Antonelli, Jean Jennings Bartik, Francis Snyder Holburton, Marlon Westcoff Meltzer, Francis Belis Spence, and Ruth Lichterman Teitelbaum. The ENIAC was the first all-electronic digital computer, a machine of approximately 18,000 vacuum tubes and 40 black eight-foot panels. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001. A space policy. I'm Brad. And I'm Wes. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please. Continuing on with our discussion of our beloved Hal this week, we've got a little bit more to talk about in the field of computing. But first, this has been a pretty big week in the world of news. Scientists have discovered the oldest known DNA and have used it to reveal what life was like two million years ago in the northern tip of Greenland, says an AP Wire article. Today, it's a barren Arctic desert, but back then it was a, a lush landscape of trees and vegetation with an array of animals, even the now extinct mastodon. The study opens up a door into the past that has basically been lost, said the best-selling... Not the best-selling... <laughs> the best-selling author. The lead author of this paper, Kurt Kayar. Actually, what would you say? K-G-A-E-R. Kayar? Kayar? Let's see here. New York best time seller, Kurt Kayar. Kayar, I like that. I think you're right. Kurt Kayar, a geologist and, la- and, and glacier expert at the University of Copenhagen, with Animal fossils hard to come by. The researchers extracted the environmental DNA, also known as eDNA, from soil samples. Genetic material that organisms shed into their surroundings, like hair, waste, spit, or decomposing carcasses. Fantastic. And this is opening up a whole new... I had no idea about eDNA. No, and, um, you know, typically for dating stuff that long ago, what they're looking at is fossilized or pollen uh-huh. samples or um, maybe bacterial uh, residue of some sort. But yeah, uh, being able to take full DNA you know, sequences and, and be able to maybe um, have discoveries of different modes of life that we weren't aware of before. And, Absolutely. Um, especially it being such a transitional place going from that lush 
almost maybe like a a downs, maybe like a uh, like a swampy mm. kind of fin. That that could have attributed to its um, preservation too. They're always able to pull so much more biological tissue and sampling out of peat bogs and clay and anything that takes out the oxygen prevents it from any kind of degradation over a long period of time. So compact with so much life in a small, it's like the bays of genetic material, I guess. <laughs> That's really cool. Is this a consequence of it losing uh, some kind of coverage? Um, for example, you know, like snow or tundra, that mm -hmm. kind of permafrost coverage? Yeah, an unfortunate byproduct of climate change. This kind of parallels to our previous discussion with the riverbeds drying up and you know the massive droughts that have been happening over Europe and mm -hmm. discovering very interesting artifacts and signs of uh, civilization but at the same time having to come to grips with the reason that's uh, able to be found yes and I could tell you more but I threw the article on the floor <laughs> and I don't know why I did that, but we've been trying to look at it while we've been talking. From Brad, it, it's well known that on our show, we don't do any kind of uh, referencing of no. real legitimate material. This this is not that kind of podcast. No, if anyone thinks that we're reading off a script or a bunch of notes, we're not. <laughs> we read things and we look at things in the week and then we talk to each other about it and then we spend the next two days after we record it making Doing sure damage that we Anything that wasn't true. <laughs> I mean, I have a few notes here, but God knows that they're completely indecipherable to everyone, including me. Indeed, indeed. And I, I have a similar book that is um, a thousand half-written sentences that you know may have hardline references, but don't have any uh, real citations to speak of. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you actually found the DNA? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's some settings, big hills of two million year old dirt, basically lying in northern Greenland. And what we did is we were digging into this dirt and we were drilling out some dirt core. You can't see any biological material like bones or anything like that. It's basically dirt, but the DNA from the past has sticked to this dirt. And this is because we are shedding DNA all the time while we're alive. And so did these animals and plants also do two million years ago. The DNA shows traces of animals, including geese, hares, reindeer, not geese, hares, because geese have feathers, not hares. Geese but, bunnies, uh, rather, bunnies yes. with incredibly long necks. Mm-hmm. Reindeer and lemmings. Uh-oh. Previously a dung beetle and some hare remains have been the only signs of animal life at the site. Well, that's usually the only thing I have in my fridge. So that's not a big surprise. But one big surprise, it says, was finding DNA from the mastodon, an extinct species that looks like a mix between an elephant and a mammoth. Wow. So I've always wondered the, the difference between mammoth and mastodon. Yeah. And I probably knew it when I was seven and obsessed with prehistory like you were. Same. I'm sure. <clears throat> same. Same. Uh, but yeah, I think the tusk formation would definitely be a, a big difference and i'm not sure as far as like geographical positioning if they have any real differences because a lot of these creatures when they're categorized they're put into like a like a zone almost you know you, you might have some similarities in the physical structure of the animal or the dna but they will sometimes still separately classify them if there's enough 
of a um, a small enough difference between them mm-hmm. and a large locational difference. Hmm. You know, just like with uh, turtles and tortoises, toads and frogs. Mm-hmm. Frog and toad are friends, of course. <clears throat> we know that. <laughs> Here, okay, here was the quote that I was looking for that I had read earlier. I wouldn't have in a million years expected to find mastodons in northern Greenland, said Love Dalen, a researcher in evolutionary genomics at Stockholm University, who was not involved in the study but was uh, asked for a quote in mm. response. Because the sediment built up over the mouth of a fjord, researchers were also able to get clues about marine life from this time period. So the DNA suggests horseshoe crabs and green algae, uh, meaning that likely the warmer water. Yes, had to have been. Greenland was a lot greener. Yeah. As we thought. (laughs) The Vikings weren't just making it up. Yeah, the Vikings obviously had a time machine. (laughs) Exactly, which proves what we thought all along. They've been in charge of our recent streaming choices. Absolutely. That's a great bit of muse. Yeah, pretty cool. it just seems like the the stretching dial of time just gets longer and longer the more we look and we're we're finding evidence of you know human civilization at earlier and earlier times we're finding evidence of animal evolutions and and transitionary periods in our earth where we thought really not a lot was going on but turns out yeah things have been around for a very very long time and uh it just seems to extend back into you know far into prehistory where it is almost hard for us to categorize and and tabulate all of that and and mind-blowing to think when you're trying to do that because now this place is a polar desert so this is a vast polar I don't, you know, I wouldn't call it a wasteland because I think it's beautiful, but I'm sure if I was trapped there. <laughs> and if you look at ecological biodiversity, you know, you're not, not gonna th- find this is not Costa Rica. Hundreds of miles away from anywhere. <clears throat> the Cape Copenhagen Formation uh-huh. in Perryland, it's called. Is it inhabited at all? Like as far as as you know, now residential um, or what? The, I think what Greenland I, really you can only live on the coastline. Yeah, because this is on the coast, but it's set close to the coast. It says it's on the northern tip of Ooh. Greenland. Yeah, there's but they they say a couple of times it's the barren Arctic desert because it's in the north. Wow. But back then, you know, whole mm. different story. I would love to uh, be able to scoop all of that built up snow and ice off of antarctica and see what's on the actual ground there i'm I'm sure there would be some fascinating absolutely you know potentially plant animal finds yeah oh totally maybe when james cameron finishes the fifth avatar he'll get back in his sub and arm it for arctic purposes please convince him to save money on the third one and just go ahead and build him oh it's too late that billion has been spent for years already that that money's done gone. Those I, are in the I game. shouldn't say anything. Game I haven't summer. seen the new film yet. So, what? and then in the present day, something that happened live um, seven days, well, six days uh, before when we're recording this, which was the landing of our beloved Artemis One. 45 seconds until forward bay cover jettisoning. Ryan now at 50,000 feet. 
covered jettisoning pyros are armed. And we have a report uh, that Orion is stable one, upright, the way it should be. Once again, splashdown occurring uh, at 11.40 a.m. Central Time, 9.40 a.m. Pacific Time, west of Baja, California, after a textbook entry for the Orion spacecraft bringing its 25-and-a-half-day mission to an end. A beautiful splashdown. Everything went perfectly. The NASA director was... Over the moon, yes. operations director was over the moon. <laughs> hey, I didn't even, <laughs> no pun intended. Three cheers for Captain's That was good. Wonderful news. And I mean, they're talking like, all right, January, let's go. We've got pretty much our teams lined up. Yeah. Just a few basic <clears throat> decisions before we announce it. Oh man, it's exciting times. So that and, is. You know, th we've gotten so much footage from small atmospheric flights and from iss and all this this is the first time we're going to get real high definition footage mm. from like lunar missions mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. almost simultaneous simulcast almost yes. from space yes tantalizing mm, moistening <laughs> our lips yeah that's, that's a disgusting uh, it's, thing to say. it's licking our lips no, let's just not even. Let's say not that. even. Mal why is the mouth such a disgusting place? Yes. Let's get rubbing our hands telepathy. with anticipation. T tinting our fingers. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Golf clapping. Golf clapping is best. Yes. Silently. Golf clapping. Mm -hmm. We had a significant breakthrough in the realm of nuclear fusion just recently this week. It seems that scientists have gotten more energy out than they've put in for the first time in a nuclear fusion experiment that's been ongoing for several, several years. Uh, this is a huge breakthrough that could mean a whole new source of clean energy that, when combined with things like solar and wind infrastructure that we're currently building, can really help eliminate a lot of the uh, emission-producing fuels that we're using to heat our homes and lighter uh, streetways at this current time. So a nuclear weapon can be like you, we had at, at terminate World War II. We're splitting very large atoms apart. Uh, gave off tremendous amount of energy. But there's another amazing thing that happens in nature where you smash tiny, tiny parts of atoms together, protons, and they fuse and convert a tiny amount of their mass into energy, into heat, heat and light. And uh, that was the mythic hydrogen bomb. But for all this time, for 80 years, people have tried to, tried to get this idea where you could do it in a controlled fashion using a tiny amount of material. And the material would be uh, a hydrogen that has an extra neutron, which has this marvelous word deuterium. And then if it has two extra neutrons, that's tritium. And so, using lasers they zap this container this whole rum uh, this gold thing with the deuterium in it and the lasers create x-rays and the x-rays create constructively interfering shock waves 
that get the thing to fuse mm -hmm. without a giant magnetic bottle and without the gravity of a star. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first time, by all accounts, they've gotten more heat out than they put in. And this is amazing. And there's, as far as I know, in the reporting the last few days, no one's mentioned that Enrique Fermi and his colleagues in University of Chicago did the first chain reaction, which led to all the nuclear power plants we have now, yeah. on December 2nd, 1942. Okay. So it's quite, it's quite a little uh, chin stroke that it's very close to 80 years later to the day that this breakthrough occurred. And so you guys, if this would work, yeah. if this is a harbinger, if this is really the beginning of something huge, it would change the world. Well, I know a lot of uh, engineers are probably chomping at the bit to get one of these uh, into a, a practical solution that can be installed in mm -hmm. energy facilities around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> without going into to much detail, uh, this is really just going to be a way for us to safely uh, fuse nuclear uh, power. And it will create very much like what we're using now, an ability for us to spin a turbine that will charge a dymo and create electricity uh, just without the uh, potential hazardous waste. Uh, very, very small amounts of this material will be needed to cause the fusion reaction and it could sustain for a very long time. So interesting times. Man, what a week in science. Absolutely. I mean, wow. I guess that's what this is, isn't it? This week in science, doop, doo doo, boop, 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 doo, boop. <laughs> that was stupid. <laughs> it's a morning, I feel it, I can feel it in my bones, feel it in my bones. It's this week in science. Get yourself out to Clavia Space. It's the coolest space in the place. Anything you can do in software, you can also do in hardware, or you can do in some inter intermediate ground called firmware, or by micro steps, or by whatever. It's a, it's a problem of the designer to, to find out what blend of those things gives the best overall mix. We had a terrible problem of the same type here, which is what caused me to think of the internal programming idea. Uh, I thought of this idea and proposed it long before von Neumann saw the stuff, by the way. The reason I thought of this is that I said, well, if we ever build another one of these machines, and, and, and we don't just have the ballistics problems and, and the internal ballistics problem and a few specialized problems that we knew about to do, how do we decide how many plugs to put over here for programming, how many counters or flip-flops or something to put in the memory, how many switches to put over here with resistors, because that's going to be different for each class of problems. There are some narrow classes where it's pretty much the same, and those are the ones we were catering to in this machine. But how do I do it when the, when the problems are wildly different? Well, I said, I've got to find a way of generalizing this. I said, everything in science that ever amounted to anything was because somebody figured out a way of taking some specific problem and generalizing it. Where do we live off, dear children? I think the last time that we were talking about the origins of how we were, we were talking about Dr. Good and artificial intelligence and the concepts at the same time that everything was going on in Bletchley Park during the war, the same year that the Colossus went live at Bletchley Park, 
another computer was being built here in the United States, a secret project by the Army called the ENIAC. What I said was that we need a memory device that's cheap enough that we can use the memory device for everything, at least at one speed level. We may need punch cards or tapes or something at some other speed level, but at least at the main speed level of the machine, we need a memory device which can hold instructions, which can hold constants, which can hold variables, which can hold information on, on what has to happen next and so on. I wrote a memo saying how we could put this information all on these magnetic, uh, all in spinning disks with magnetic edges. Then I decided spinning disks with magnetic edges are really too slow to match the speed of electronics. And I had invented for a radar purpose, for some other purpose, a, mag a mercury tank device, which I, for timing purposes and for some other purposes in radar. This was more of an arithmetic machine mm -hmm. rather than a code breaking yeah, design com because compared to the machine that Irving and Turing were working yeah. on, where it was, um, you know, doing high-end computation, but it didn't, other than decoding, didn't have a real practical application. Yeah. So this one had a practical application, but it was specifically designed for ballistics. The trajectory for ammunition fire, an incredible amount of people that took to compute these things manually. The thing was eight feet tall. It was 80 feet long. Took up most of a giant room. This took place at the University of Pennsylvania. This is a multiracial group of engineers working on this in 1943. It was programmed by six women. My calculus teacher, I had said to my calculus teacher, I don't want to teach school, what a, but I can't think of anything else to do. And she said, oh, there are lots of things you can do. So she began to bring me uh, recruitment letters. So she brought me from one, one from IBM for system service girls, and she brought me one from Aberdeen Proving Ground for computers. Toward the, the spring of 1945, it became pretty obvious that the war was ending, and uh, I can't remember exactly whether it was Golst, Goldstein, Lieutenant Goldstein, or John Holbert, who came to me one day while I was working on my shift and asked if I would be at all interested in working on the new computer that was being constructed upstairs. So uh, with nothing else uh, looming big in my future at that time, I said I thought that'd be interesting to learn how to do that. I was just sitting there calculating these trajectories to go into firing table for guns, and uh, each uh, firing table had about a thousand trajectories, thousand to 1,200. It took about 40 hours 30 to 40 hours to do one by hand. So yeah. they had a lot of them to do. This announcement came around that they were looking for operators and of a new machine they were building called the ENIAC. So of course I had no idea what it was, but uh, I knew it wasn't doing hand calculations. So I figured that if I could start on the ground floor with other people, then I'd have a chance to get ahead, so I applied. Evidently, they appro had approached about six girls who were working in the unit at the time and asked them if they'd be interested in learning this. So we, uh, there were uh, six of us chosen from those who decided they would like to, and we were sent uh, around the first week in June, I suppose, to Aberdeen to, for a three-month study of how to operate all the different computing uh, computing machines that were down there, that is the um, IBM type card handling machines, because uh, we 
we're at all familiar with that type of operation. And so we went down there and we learned how to wire up tabulator boards and how to wire up their automatic relay multipliers, which they had down there. The six of us spent the summer in Aberdeen learning how to operate the, all the IBM machines. And the reason for this was that the input and the output of the ENIAC was going to be by way of IBM machines. So if we were going to operate the machine, they figured that we would have to know how to work IBM cards. Well, when we came back that fall from, this is in the, now in the fall of 1945, the ENIAC was already pretty much constructed. As a matter of fact, it was all the panels were up. Uh, some of the parts were not quite uh, finished. I think the uh, multiplier dividers, I mean the divider square rooter was not in operation, but otherwise everything else was. And uh, very sure, uh, then we, ha we, were, we were told we had to learn how to operate this machine. Well, how do you go about that? And they gave us a whole stack of blueprints. And these were the wiring diagrams for all the panels. And we, they said, here, you can figure out how the machine works and then figure out how to program it. Well, <laughs> this was uh, a little bit hard to do, knowing nothing about anything. So Dr. Burks at that time was one of the people assigned to explain to us how the various uh, parts of the computer worked, how, the, how an accumulator worked. Well, once you knew how an accumulator worked, you could pretty well be able to trace the other circuits for yourself and figure this thing out. So uh, we then uh, proceeded to program a trajectory to, uh, to go onto this machine. And we had barely begun to uh, think that we had enough knowledge of the machine to program a trajectory when we were told that two people were coming from Los Alamos to put a problem on the machine. And Fran and I were asked to help these two people from Los Alamos to put their problem on the machine. Well, as I understood, I didn't understand it too well at that time, but now I know uh, from things I've learned later that Nick and that was Nick Metropolis and Stan Frankel, both from Los Alamos Laboratory. They had worked with Captain and Mrs. Goldstein and had gotten the general idea of how the ENIAC was going to work and they had programmed their problem uh, which was supposed to be a top secret problem then they had left gone back to Los Alamos when they appeared again in about October I think it was they had the problem pretty much uh, programmed onto sheets of paper and we were to help them set up the machine for this and that was our first real time on the computer itself. We went downstairs into that room and that was when all the fun began because no one knew how many bad joints there were and how many bad tubes there were and so on until uh, we actually started testing the machine. Well, John and Press at that time were like mother hens. Oh, they were mother hens. Of course they were. They stayed with that computer night and day. And whatever went wrong, they were in there. There were a couple engineers assigned to it uh, to, uh, to do the work, but they just were completely involved in every aspect of that operation of the computer. Goldstein invited Betty and me out to his, uh, and his wife, Adele was there, to his apartment. And he asked us if the ENIAC, if the trajectory was ready to go 
and if they could use it as a demonstration for the announcement on the 15th. Well, Betty and I were pretty sure it was perfect. So we said, you bet. <laughs> when they ran the trajectory uh, for, the, uh, for the demonstration, the um, trajectory that they ran took 30 seconds for the shell to trace it, but the ANIAC did the calculations in 20 seconds. The people that were sitting there could see the numbers build up as the, as the shell reached the altitude and then came down and hit the ground. So that was pretty impressive. We went out to the tabulator and printed them up and handed them out as souvenirs for people. Yeah, we ran it several times, you know, to show people, you know, exactly what was going on. So, I mean, they were absolutely ecstatic. Well, they went out to, for dinner with all the people, but guess what? Not the Antioch women. Betty and I weren't invited, so <laughs> we were sort of horrified. It was programmed by six women. Now, there were 80 women who were recruited from across the country for their mathematical abilities to calculate the ballistics trajectories because they were good at differential calculus. Well, six of those were recruited then to program this computer. Kate Mockley, Jean Bardock, Betty Holberton, Ruth Teitelbaum, Marlon Meltzer, and Francis Spence. This wasn't really known until recently, the last few years. Were they under some kind of uh, NDMA or something like that? Or Not at all. They were just completely ignored after their work was done, basically. They were never listed by name in any of the publications. They were never acknowledged for any of their contributions in any of the, the photographs they're taken. They're just in the pictures. Wow. Then after years, I mean, nobody paid any attention to the Antioch women until 1986. Uh, Catherine Kleiman, who um, was graduating from Harvard with a degree in social science, and uh, she had chosen as her senior paper the women in the computer business. When I was a student, I took a lot of computer science courses in college. That was a while ago, and we didn't hear much about STEM then. I just took it because I loved to program, and I loved the programming projects. There was only one problem. As the, as the classes that I took advanced, the number of women dropped significantly. And so by the time we got to the advanced classes, there was one, me, or maybe two women in the classroom. And I began to wonder, did women belong in computing? Did we have role models? I knew, of course, about Lady Ada Lovelace and Captain, then Captain, Grace Hopper, later Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the US Navy. But Ada Lovelace was in the 19th century, and Grace Hopper was in the 20th century, and one woman succeeding per century didn't make me feel warm and fuzzy about my future in computing. And so I went looking for women in computing, and I started scouring the histories and encyclopedias of computer science. And I didn't find the names of any other women, but I found some pictures. And this is a picture of the ENIAC computer, the great ENIAC. This is the world's first all-electronic, programmable, general-purpose computer. The great-great-grandfather of everything on your smartphones and in our laptops. And 
this picture was taken in 1946. The ENIAC was a secret US Army project during World War II. And this is taken about six months after it was unveiled. And very clearly, there are men and women in that picture. But only the men's names were in the captions. So I dug a little deeper. And I found there were more pictures of women in front of ENIAC. And I began to wonder what's going on. So I took the pictures to my professor and I said, who are the women? And he said he didn't know, but he sent me to the co-founder of the Computer History Museum that was then here in Boston. And clutching my photographs, I took the tea across Boston and I showed them to her. And I'll never forget. She rolled her eyes at me and said they're models. They were supposed to be posed in front of the machine to make it look good. Well, they certainly do that, but they didn't look like models to me. They looked very confident and self-assured in front of this machine. And I had worked with some big computers before, and I know how overwhelming they are the first few times you use them. And the ENIAC was eight feet tall, 80 feet long, dominated three sides of a big room. And these women look like they know exactly what they're doing. And so I decided to track them down. Undergraduates can be pretty silly. <laughs> and so I started calling around the University of Pennsylvania, where the ENIAC had been built during the war. And one thing led to another, and they invited me to come to the 40th anniversary of ENIAC. So I took the train from Boston down to Philadelphia, and soon I was in a big room celebrating the 40th anniversary of ENIAC, the world's first modern computer. And it was very exciting. And there were clusters of men talking about how they had built the ENIAC. And I thought, this is great. But then I found a cluster of women. And they were talking about something very technical involving the ENIAC that they had done. And I listened closely, and they were talking about the bug in their program the night before ENIAC's big demonstration. And at a certain point, I realized I was talking to the women in the pictures. They weren't models. They were ENIAC's first programmers. So that day, I learned that ENIAC had been programmed by six young women, six women brought in specifically to do ENIAC's first program for the Army, a ballistics trajectory. And that day, I met four of them. I met Marlon Meltzer, Jean Bardick, Kay Mockley Antonelli, Betty Holberton, and those were the four I met. And they told me about two more who had been part of their project who were not at the anniversary. Ruth Teitelbaum and Francis Spence. I tell you the names because I think their names are important. And they were in their 60s at the time, bright, funny, dynamic women. And they told me a little bit about their World War II story, that they had been recruited by the Army for their mathematics abilities. And they had been brought into Philadelphia from New York, from Philadelphia. Um, one came all the way out from a farm in Missouri and they had been brought in to hand calculate ballistics trajectories. This is the path that a missile takes from the time it leaves the muzzle of a gun, an artillery gun, until it hits the target eight to 10 miles away. And when you calculate this differential calculus equation, which took about 40 hours to do by hand, you know what angle to shoot the gun under certain weather conditions in the battlefield to hit that target. And boy, was our artillery accurate when we used these calculations. And so the military hired, we think, between 80 and 100 women to hand calculate these ballistics trajectories, and they called them computers. A computer was a person before it was a machine. That was their official title. 
And so these women hand-calculated the ballistics trajectories for, for years during the war. But somewhere in the middle of the war, the military needed, realized they needed more calculations faster. And there were no machines to do it. And they commissioned a very expensive experimental project that they were certain wouldn't work. And that was ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. And ENIAC was designed to automate these equations. And when ENIAC was finished, they brought in six women. They took six computers and assigned them the task of programming ENIAC. There were no programming languages. There's no compilers. There's no operating systems. They just assigned them to program ENIAC. And they did. So this was the story I learned at the 40th anniversary of ENIAC. And I came back to school, and I was excited. And I finished my computer science courses, and I started my career in technology. All good. But in 1996, 10 years later, a bell went off in my head, and I realized that the 50th anniversary of ENIAC was coming up, and I wanted to know what happened to the programmers. And so I called the university, I found the dean who was responsible for the anniversary, it was going to be a big deal, 50th anniversary of the first modern computer. And when I asked who was coming from the ENIAC programmers, he didn't know who I was talking about except to the extent that the women were widows of the engineers, their names had been forgotten, and their roles had been forgotten. And I thought, we've got a problem. And so I got a grant, <laughs> and I said, we're going to tape them. And so I tracked them down again, reintroduced myself, and started asking very detailed questions about programming the ENIAC. And you know what? They didn't remember. And I thought, you know, it was 50 years ago, but on the other hand, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. Because I know programming in modern terminology, but what they were doing was a little different. It's the same basic human function of breaking down a human equation, a human calculation, into the steps the computer can handle. We do that today, and we did that then. But the way they implemented it was very different. So I thought, if I knew more about the technology, I could ask better questions. So by now, I was a young attorney in a telecommunications law firm, and they were a little surprised when I asked for a leave of absence. I said, I have to go to the Library of Congress to learn about old computers. And they said, OK. And so I spent a few months in the Library of Congress learning about ENIAC, BIONAC, and UNIVAC. They were created by overlapping teams, and the UNIVAC was the first commercial computer. It was synonymous for years with the word computer in the minds of the public. And so I learned a little more about the terminology, and, um, and now I went back to the programmers and I asked more detailed questions in their terms. And the stories came flooding out, and we captured them. And so they told me how they had been given wiring diagrams and logical diagrams of ENIAC and told, figure out how those 42 panels work. And then they had to break their, their program down into steps ENIAC could handle. But not only that, they had to wire it. <laughs> they had to take a piece of data, wire it into the panel, set the panel. Some of them did addition and subtraction, so you had to set that. Square root divider, that was another one, so you had to set that switch. Wait, figure out the timing of the panel, because each panel's calculation timing was different. And then wire it into the next panel. They had to set 3,000 switches. This was their read-only memory for the constants of the ballistics trajectory. And no one showed them how to do a flowchart, if flowchart technology even existed. So they created their own. They called them peddling sheets to keep, keep track of each step of the program, as well as where all the switches, where all the cables, and where all the wires went. So they're peddling sheets. Amazing, amazing story. So we captured these stories 
on film. And we realized that we had some pioneers no one had ever heard of before. Would anybody care? We decided to nominate them for some awards to see if anyone did. And I'm thrilled to tell you the ENIAC programmers received awards from coast to coast. On the West Coast, they were inducted into the Hall of Fame of Women in Technology International. On the East Coast, Betty Holberton uh, became the Ada Lovelace recipient and other awards. But my favorite one was in 2008 when Jean Bardock was inducted as a fellow into the Computer History Museum alongside Linus Torvalds, who created Linux, and Bob Medcalf, who created Ethernet, and she was the super pioneer. So then we finally raised money for the documentary to put these oral histories together into a documentary where the women tell their story. And I worked with amazing producers, John Polferman and Kate McMahon, to do this. And we produced the documentary, and we purposely produced it for ages 12 and up. We wanted it to go to middle school, high school, college, and the general public. And we've shown it uh, to people from ages 10 to 92 so far. It was interesting. We premiered the documentary, and we had a little Q&A, and afterwards, women came up to me, tears streaming down their faces. They worked for Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and they told me that the story inspired them, that they're often alone and isolated in, uh, in, in, their, in their teams, in their meetings. They're, they're often the only women. And the idea that women created computing was inspiring and exciting to them. And I also wondered whether the story would translate, a US World War II story. We showed it all over the world, uh, Zurich, Tel Aviv, London, Stockholm, and we found out that women were excited about it and that the challenges of women in computing appear to be universal. And men liked it too and talked about showing it to their daughters to inspire them to STEM. The ENIAC programmers would be proud. But the silver cloud has a black lining. The computer history community has been telling the same story for 70 years. It's still, they're still telling the story of white men inventing computing. And I don't understand why, because we know the ENIAC, BIONAC, and UNIVAC teams were exceedingly diverse. There were not only brilliant white engineers, there were African-American engineers, Chinese engineers, and of course, lots of women. And so I don't understand. And as we gather in this hall, to celebrate President Kennedy's vision of going to space and his challenge to us of STEM. And as we try to encourage girls and boys to go into STEM, shouldn't we be telling them that the pioneers of STEM look like them and that they come from all sorts of backgrounds and that they all have role models in the early history? So the, the ENIAC, when it came online, uh, you, you said it was being used for uh, calculating ballistic trajectories. Was this being used in World War II? Was mm -hmm. it By the time it got online, it wasn't able to fulfill its purpose. I gotcha. Because it was already winding I down. I just wonder, I wondered about that because I, you always hear about Colossus. You mm -hmm. always hear about the Enigma machine and all that. Mm -hmm. but I, I just, in my World War II research, hadn't come across ENIAC um, for you know the last couple of segments. And that's really interesting. So, this started as a a project for you know maybe some kind of military purpose and we probably got so much more out of it and we're probably really lucky they didn't just pull the funding right from under it totally and, you know leave it in a, a dark room for a long time and it it went live at just the right time when we were investing in what the new world of of 
the military as well as technology was going to be. And the Defense Department was all in. You know, so much military research and development has created, you know, the internet. GPS. For one. (laughs) Yeah. Standardizing time. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you come across it being certified Turing complete? I've never heard of that before. And Turing completeness means that it's computationally universal. And it apparently gained that status when it came online. So it is a Turing complete machine. If it can be computed by an algorithm on the Turing machine, any real world other machine like it should be able to compute it as well. So it was one of the first universal computers uh, in a sense where it could probably be used for other things other than its singular purpose. I mean, that, that sounds pedantic. God, I'm sorry. It just, but that's, that's so, that's, that's revolutionary. Like that's never been done before. Everything's so small time in house, um, just very, very uh, bespoke and and not universal. You know, that, that was never really a, a thing that they thought of, standardizing uh, but that's very smart that turing has a certification that shows a completeness level of your your model your machine whatever it is capable of doing what all these other turing complete machines are capable of again walking we're really walking the dog here <laughs> but, I, I just yeah. i just wanted to get that idea yeah. out so if we want to like totally pull something out yeah. of that we can good housekeeping seal of approval Yes. The ultimate gold standard. Yeah, it, it got the J.D. Power Association's <laughs> award for them <laughs> the last six years in running. <laughs> yes. Do they still give that out? I think they do. I think they do. Yeah, that's that's really neat. Um, so he obviously had to have a little bit of an involvement and in at least seeing the inner workings of it to give that certification. Obviously, England being an ally, that, that wouldn't have been a hard thing for us to, to do for them to let him kind of check it out. All this... Um, you know, kind of builds what twenty years before our uh, Kubrickian it does uh, Odyssey it, starts it happening. Absolutely, so, uh, you know that had to be these computational breakthroughs were in the minds of the people, and I think one thing that Kubrick was really trying to do was show a little bit of futurism and show a little bit of how embracing new and evolving technology can benefit your life and maybe give you possibilities that are beyond your practical dreams. I mean, he really was going full out on interstellar travel, but to introduce things like video phones, really futuristic modes of travel via shuttles and stations and this was a very, very influential time for technology. It, it really was coming into normal households and it was coming into everyday people's lives in a way that revolutionized the United States, I know, very quickly and had an international effect that affected cinema for years and years. Mm-hmm. To make Americans aware of our space progress, the motion picture medium and the national magazine medium can complement each other's most effective educational techniques. The motion picture, long known for its ability to educate while entertaining, should be used in combination with the magazine and its greater facility for serious discussion in depth. Look proposes a special advertising section to be published in its first 1967 issue, devoted to the social impact of celestial exploration. I think 
that's what makes the oncoming 50s so exciting uh, for a lot of people is peace times and it was really a boon time for the u.s and its allies you know after all of this give and give and give we yeah. were finally able to come back home and yeah. start families mm-hmm. and exactly the the whole suburban lifestyle really mm-hmm. came into hold then and uh, the idea of your average everyday american being able to have a house and a car and a yeah. family and technology was able to thrive because uh, there was the capability to introduce more capital into society people could buy they could be more discerning with their dollars they didn't have to buy the cheapest or you know the most efficient they could maybe spend a little bit more and get something that was within their financial means like washing machines and things that helped with cooking and home maintenance you know so much time spent toiling and now that there's extra income there's the ability to invest in new technology uh, it's almost like a positive feedback cycle at that mm. point and we really see a whole era of gadgets come out from there endless optimism for what could be made and what could be done and what could be programmed and you see it in sci-fi of the 50s too the apex of that is robbie the robot in forbidden planet welcome to altair 4 gentlemen I am to transport you to the residence. If you do not speak English, I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and sub-tongues. Colloquial English will do fine, thank you. Uh, This is uh, no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Nice climate you have here. High oxygen content. I rarely use it myself, sir. It promotes rust. This boom meant more people. More people meant a lot more paperwork for the upcoming census in 1915. They were looking for some way to hasten this process because it was taking longer and longer to compute manually. There's a bigger and bigger Growing population. population. Mm-hmm. There was a congressional deadline for these things as well because of drawing the electoral maps and you know before an election. And yeah, absolutely. So they could get constituents in their districts. Um, you know, and that way they were able to assure political yeah. victory that they wanted. Absolutely. So, yeah, we get the gerrymandering. (laughs) (laughs) So, in 1946, the first commercial computing contract was signed. There were two guys, Eckerd and Mockley, and they were convinced that you could make a commercial venture out of computing and what was done with the ENIAC. They shopped it around. Nobody bought it. Nobody believed it. You know, this was seen very esoteric. Like, you you needed very, very advanced mathematical and logic skills to program. Right. Like, <clears throat> two plus two into one of these things. Exactly. You couldn't... It, it was a revolutionary machine, but you had to be a top-minded scientist and probably involved in the construction, you know, from the ground up. It's not something you could just put someone in front of and say, now click here. Exactly. Now click here. Yeah, right. <laughs> also, you know, the, the vacuum tubes kept burning out so fast, 
if you got one to run for like a couple hours straight, that was considered yeah. a great day's work. But the the United States Census Bureau needed to invest in something, so they were swayed by Eric Demockley and and signed this contract for what was then known as Univac, the Universal Automatic Computer. Computers are useful whenever we have to handle large amounts of information or where we have to make very complicated mathematical complications. In this room is a typical Univac system. Delivered to the U.S. Bureau of Census in 1951, one of its main jobs has been to summarize the information gathered in the 1950 census. The electronic circuits behind these panels do tens of thousands of additions every minute. To use such speed, we need the devices which stand on the right. Each unit can read or record on magnetic tape, and the millions of numbers and letters on such tapes are all controlled automatically by the computer. All the information used in any problem is furnished to the Univac on such reels of tape. The information the computer will need for a particular job is given to the typist who sits in front of the Unityper. Using a keyboard much like a standard typewriter, she records the written code of directions onto a metal tape, which will later tell the Univac every detail of its job. For each number and letter typed on the keyboard, there is a special pattern of magnetic areas created on the tape. The computer must be supplied with facts and figures, but it must also be given instructions as to what to do with these facts and figures, that is, how to use them in the problem. Here is the typist recording instructions. They must be complete in every detail, telling the machine what to do and exactly what order to do it in. All of this must be worked out carefully ahead of time by trained personnel. Some sets of instructions are used over and over in different parts of the problem, or even in entirely different problems. These standard procedures can be recorded on tape and used as often as desired, without further expenditure of human thought. It's really the U.S. Census. Once again, amazingly, 80 years later, almost, coming back into the picture as the catalyst for computing innovation. This time, it sinks these guys into bankruptcy. Oh. They end up being over their heads, just like Herman Hollerith when he signed up with the census. He actually knocked it out of the park with the census, but he got in over his head with the train companies. Mm -hmm. But with them, you know, they were building this as they went along. They ended up way over budget, way behind schedule, and they actually ended up turning it in a year late. Well, they end up turning it in late. They don't turn it in at all. Uh, they end up completely steeped in their necks. They're now bankrupt. They oh, can't no. fulfill any of the contracts that are coming in while they try and finish this thing, this big albatross. Jeez. Then John Mockley, meanwhile, gets targeted in the witch hunts, McCarthyism of the day, because oh, really? he once attended a meeting in the 30s that happened to be linked to a communist organization. So he gets he caught up in the Red Scare. No, no, about. So all his security clearances were pulled. Dang. So, <clears throat> and then it, the call stopped coming. Um, he was pretty bitter about that till his how death, wild. obviously, like so many were who were victims. Well, how often were they. <clears throat> was the census decadal at that point, or. Was there any kind of I think it was the same it? schedule that we're on currently. I gotcha. Um, That's just unfortunate he wasn't able to, to scooch that. Right. I mean, man. And the problem was they ended up, before before it was even completed, they had to sell out. So they, they, they sold it to this guy who owned a company called American Totalizator Company. Oh. Totalizator. Totalizator, yes. Wow. He wanted a computer to, to tabulate the odds. To play the horses because Oof. that was his business was gotcha. uh, horse racing and totalizator was for odds 
the owner, this guy Harry Strauss, poured in this big investment. Then he gets it and he dies in a plane crash. What? So they ended up selling to Remington Rand, which is a company that made typewriters and office supplies, and you might know them oh, for the Razor. Yeah, absolutely. So the, under them, Univac finally gets delivered to the Census Bureau in 1951. A year later than it was supposed to, a year late, and way over budget. Yeah. But what they delivered was the big grid work for everything that came ever since. Wow. Buy lion's teeth, drink lion's teeth, love lion's teeth. Lions the quality tea, freshly packed and full-flavored Lions the quality tea. Meanwhile, in the UK, the J Lions Company, the tea and biscuit behemoth. Ex- excuse me. <laughs> There's this company called <laughs> J Lions. Did they have a cordial and crumpet machine as well? <laughs> what? Funny you should say that. Oh no. They they wanted a computer. They wanted something for their bookkeeping, like manage their employment records, accounting, sales. So they they consulted this guy from Cambridge called Maurice Wilkes, coordinated team and write programs to anticipate order changes based on things like the weather and whether or not they would have more or less orders of steak and kidney pudding because it's raining or something like that, you know. Wow. So predictive measures. Okay. All right. um, so the company invested all this stuff in-house. This is the smartest thing ever. So they, they, just like Xerox will do later and then not profit off their own research, the Lions company here in the 50s, or in the late 40s, rather, is investing in this research that they now own, the tech for. So this, this computer is so great, they'll start selling computers to other businesses. They start the Lions Electronic Office, or LEO for short, oh. and it becomes a booming concern in the UK. They, at one point, were in contract with another company who wanted to make a vending machine for hot sausages. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound problematic at all. <laughs> He's putting 5p and that come he sizzling hot sausages. We're sorry UK fans. <laughs> I hope he had a license for it. <laughs> you have a license to sell sausages. <laughs> From Clavia Space. This is Brad and I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.